You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker back at you with another interactive class, one more prior to the Thanksgiving break. So that basically means that next week, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, there will not be a class. So um, just keep note of that. I know most of you probably already have plans or are traveling anyway. So we have Jennifer LeBay in the house, Tom McNicholas, Super Chat Superstar. Uh, Victoria Brees, great to see you down there as well. Wonderful. So for those listening to the podcast version later on, perhaps on one of the podcast platforms, one of the uh, syndicated shows like KPNL, KGRA, UnX Network, want to let you know that every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, you can join us out here live, connecteduniverseportal.com, where we we have this fantastic interactive class. You get to see a wonderful slide presentation. You get to interact in chat, ask your questions. Also, there are video clips that we sprinkle in as well. You can actually see all of that rather than just listen to it later. There's a 30-day free trial for that. You can also sign up for an annual subscription. I'll even let you know that for the annual subscription or any of the single classes out there, there's going to be a Black Friday special. But with the monthly plan, you get a 30-day free trial which gets you the Connecting the Universe interactive class, a sneak peek and behind-the-scenes videos, monthly Q&A videos, exclusive articles, insider travel blogs like Ancient Egypt, the American Southwest, Ireland, all of this and more, ConnectedUniversePortal.com. All right, now that we've got the formalities out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into tonight's class, which is on vile vortices in triangle areas of the world. Yes, I know we've covered this quite a bit, and just a couple of weeks ago, we did specifically the Alaska Triangle. That was a prelude up to, well, you know, I've had some things going on all year, filmed a lot of television shows, and those are starting to come out. So last week was the Gaia television show, Beyond Belief with George Norrie, where we talked about portals and disappearances in Alaska. So that was all specifically Alaska Triangle, which is why two weeks ago uh, we actually had a class specifically on that I do have links on my social media where you can find that episode. So please go ahead and seek out those links and watch that. It's a fantastic interview, and I really appreciate uh, George's questions within that interview. It's always a, a great interview with George. And then this week, the whole reason why we are expanding to even more triangle areas of the world, yes, there's more than just Bermuda and Alaska, uh, it's because this Friday at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, I'm going to be on Unexplained with William Shatner talking about 
well, wouldn't you know it? Triangle areas of the world. <laughs> so we're going to be diving into all of those topics tonight. Uh, I believe the name of that episode is called uh, The Bermuda Triangle and Beyond. So let's get into tonight's class question, which is when strange disappearances occur in triangle areas of the world, where do you think these planes, ships, and people go? Did have some responses to that. Uh, Jennifer LeBay stated, I think they just don't even realize they went anywhere. They just continue a new timeline from that point forward in an alternate universe. They disappear here and continue on there. Or they go to the upside down. My Stranger Things reference. Jen is almost caught up. <laughs> and Tom McNicholas says, I believe they, they went somewhere in the future and will return when the aliens are accepted and make themselves known to us. Um, kind of on board with the future stuff. We're going to get into that a little bit more. We do cover that uh, when we talk about the Alaska Triangle, specifically with the uh, missing Douglas airplane. In the Bermuda Triangle, it's Bruce Gernon and his experience where he actually did propel a little bit into the future. And there's a couple of things this evening where we will get into that a little bit here. So, all right, let's go ahead and dive into the very first one. Bermuda Triangle, and this isn't going to be a rehash of stuff that we've done in the past. I mean, there's going to be some things that are similar, but uh, we are going to cover some new ground here as well. With Bermuda, I wanted to cover a timeline. So basically the idea here, you got Bermuda to Miami to uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Those are very, very kind of rigid uh, points on this supposed triangle. And, you know, it wasn't always the case. So if we go back to 1950, when there wasn't anything known as a Bermuda Triangle back then, sure, there were strange things that happened there and people were starting to talk about it. So this particular map here is from a Miami Herald article by Edward Van Winkle Jones from September 17th, 1950, in an article called Sees puzzles still baffle men in push button age. And it gets into a lot of you know mysterious disappearances and things that were happening around that time frame of, of 1950. So I'm going to rattle a couple off here, uh, just straight out of the article. So uh, one of them is the uh, the Sandra, which is a three, which was a 350 foot freighter, 12 men aboard from Miami to Savannah, 300 tons of insecticide were aboard. So um, un unfortunately, this thing went missing, and I don't know if I want to know what happened to the insecticide that was aboard. That, yeah, all that into the ocean. If that's what happened to it, if it sank, yikes. Um, also, a, 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 a plane that took off from uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, flew 1,000 miles toward Miami. Last radio message, 4 a.m., December 27th, 1948, reported them 50 miles from, uh, from Miami, then never arrived, completely disappeared. Nobody knows whatever happened to it. Uh, 32 people in all, men, women, two babies. Uh, there was January 18th, 1949. Uh, 
The British airliner, the Ariel, vanished in thin air. The task force of United States Navy was on maneuvers at the time. 20 people aboard on its way from London to Chile, gone, uh, somewhere in that area. The naval force that was out there abandoned their maneuvers, went looking for it, never found. January 31st, 1948, another British plane, the Star Tiger, approached Bermuda with 29 on board, craft radioed its position several times, then silence and nothing again. Nothing's ever been found. So those are just a handful. I'm not going to read the whole thing off because there's like a whole laundry list. And there's others that we're going to get into here in a little bit. But first, I just wanted to give you a bit of a timeline. So that was 1950. Again, this is the little map that they drew. There's no triangle in here, but you can kind of see that they're all around the same area. And kind of if you, you see the little hash marks of, you know, this boat going here, these planes going there you can actually start to see the vague outlines of a triangle. And it first got referenced as a triangle in this particular article here, 1952 Fate Magazine, See Mystery at Our Back Door. So this gave a basic uh, reference to a triangle saying, the region involved a watery triangle bounded roughly by Florida, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico measures less than a thousand miles on any one side. So you have here, it doesn't say specifically where in Florida right now, uh, people say Miami doesn't say specifically where in Puerto Rico. Now people say San Juan. And then of course the island of Bermuda is, is small enough. So this is really the first beginnings of, of starting to call it a triangle, but when it really got dubbed the Bermuda triangle, was this 1964 article in the uh, periodical Argosy by Vincent Gaddis. So he's credited with formally creating the term the Bermuda Triangle because of his article titled The Deadly Bermuda Triangle. A year later in 1965, he expanded on that article in chapter 13 of his book, Invisible Horizons. Following that, we have uh, in 1969, uh, John Wall Wallace Spencer wrote uh, Limbo of the Lost, which was a book, uh, and specifically about the Bermuda Triangle. Two years after that, he produced a documentary called The Devil's Triangle. So this is where uh, Bermuda Triangle starts to take on that name of also the Devil's Triangle. So it has kind of two names. Bermuda Triangle, of course, is the more popular one. Devil's Triangle it does get referred to that on occasion. And then there was the, the big blow up with uh, Charles Berlitz in his book, The Bermuda Triangle, an incredible saga of unexplained disappearances. So this is where it got extremely mainstream. Now, Berlitz was a renowned linguist, spoke eight different languages. Uh, he gradu graduated magna cum laude from Yale University and spent 13 years in the U.S. Army working and uh, the majority of that time in military intelligence. So this was a very, very smart, intelligent individual. And yet here he is writing about strange disappearances and supernatural activity in the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, he also wrote about other paranormal phenomena, not just within the Bermuda Triangle, uh, but also in other areas, including Atlantis. Uh, he did claimed that Atlantis was real, and he believed it was within the Bermuda Triangle. 
he was also an ancient astronaut theorist and believed that extraterrestrials have visited Earth, which is not, you know, too far from what people are um, talking a little bit more prevalently about these days. But back then in the 1970s, it was a little bit more taboo. Now, that was 1974. Well, just prior to Berlitz's book in 1972, you have an individual that we talked about a few months back, Ivan T. Sanderson, who wrote about the vile vortices. Now, this was another very intelligent individual. He was a British biologist, uh, later became a U.S. citizen, which is very cool. He wrote several books on animals, nature, and the like, and he had a profound interest in the paranormal and supernatural. He was also an early follower of Charles Fort. And it's from Charles Fort where we get the term Fortian. He was also the organizer for the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained. So this was um, his paranormal group. <laughs> you know, but before we had paranormal teams, you know, you had uh, you know the cyclical research uh, organization. I forget the full term, but they've been around since the late 1800s, Cyclical Research Society. Uh, and then, of course, you have Ivan T. Sanderson, Investigation for the Unexplained. So you had these sort of organizations rather than, you know, your paranormal teams going out and doing ghost hunts. You had some, you know, kind of, quote, unquote, ghost hunters. Uh, Carrie Price, Hans Holzer, eventually the Warrens, you know, that, that came out. And now, you know, we have them all over the place. I think there's some questions and comments down in here. Um, all right, I'll get to those in just a moment. Let me finish up here on uh, Ivan T. Sanderson. Of course, Sanderson's most famous work was an article published in 1972 titled Grave, uh, 12 Devil's Graveyards Around the World. This is where we talk about the vile vortices. So within this, uh, he describes that uh, 10 of these, basically, are within the Tropic of Cancer, uh, or five are within the Tropic of Cancer, I'm sorry, five are within the Tropic of Capricorn, which is a total of 10, the other two, North Pole, South Pole. Together, if you draw lines through the Earth on these, it will make a perfect icosagon, or 20-sided polygon, which... We're not going to get into sacred geometry, but that is fascinating that uh, these hot spots around the world of this type of activity can make a beautiful polygon like this. Now, there are more than just those 12 around the world, but these seem to be... Uh, little bit more uh, prevalent with their with their activity so if you look at his 12 vile vortices you know you have the bermuda triangle uh you have the dragon triangle also another one referred to as a devil's triangle out in japan we're going to get into that here in a little bit you have easter island a uh, number of other locations that are are very volatile so all right let me get to these questions and comments down here um, and yeah, Sarah, you make a good point here. Uh, if that insecticide had been released into the ocean, you would have seen some major changes in marine life. Now, 
depending on how deep it was, you know, we're talking, uh, what was that, 1950, I think the date was on that. It was either late 40s or early 50s. Uh, so the scientific equipment to pick up on all of that wouldn't have been as good, but you probably would have seen a lot of sea life washing up on shore or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that disappeared into one of these portals. And then Sarah also has a question here. Could satellites indicate the depth of the ocean floor within the Bermuda Triangle? All that stuff would have to pile up eventually. Yeah, that's that's a good point. So, I mean, satellite imagery and, um, and what we've been able to pick up on is actually only a small fraction. Uh, I forget the exact percentage, but we haven't even mapped out a quarter of the Earth's oceans yet. So it's it's very mysterious what's what's down there we're still discovering new life forms today when we uh when we study the ocean depths so it's uh it's a whole other world out there you know we talk about the last frontier like alaska or space and the cosmos but those ocean depths on our planets is a whole other frontier in and of itself a couple other things about the uh bermuda triangle just to kind of wrap it up here, some of the history of it will give you. Uh, goes back really as far as Christopher Columbus, as far as our history of it. Now, the natives uh, and indigenous of the area you know, may have their, uh, may have had, we, we're not really going to know now, uh, may have had their own uh, legends regarding that area. But we don't know. We we know as far back as Columbus because, um, yeah, we, we, de we destroyed a lot of that. Or the Europeans destroyed a lot of it coming over. But when he sailed through the area, he reported very, very strange compass readings. Uh, he reported lights on the water that he described as like little candles that were, uh, were raising up and then lowering back down. And then he also noted, well, Actually, the entire crew exclaimed from all three ships that it was a marvelous sheet of fire that fell from the sky. Uh, a lot of people liken that to a meteor, but we don't know. It's a sheet of fire, whatever that may be. So when we fast forward a little bit, USS Cyclops, uh, 1918, this went missing with a crew of 309 sometime after leaving Barbados carrying manganese ore. In a strange twist of fate, its two sister ships were also both lost while carrying metallic ore. However, both of those disappeared in the North Atlantic during World War II. So, I mean, you could say it's a cursed line of ships or, or something like that. Uh, but the Cyclops is the one that actually went down in what we would call the, the Bermuda Triangle. Then there's Flight 19. And I know we've talked about this before. This is the most famous one, and there's, but there's something I want to read here, uh, which is really quite interesting. But it's December 1945. Five torpedo bombers uh, took off from Fort Lauderdale. And, you know, ironically, they are flying in a triangle-type shape. That's, that's their course. And the reason why they're called Flight 19 is these were training flights. They were the 19th one that day. They were ahead due east, then up north at a bit of an angle, and then back down south at a bit of an angle to complete 
the triangle, ironically enough. Again, problem is after they uh, they went east and they turned northward, their compasses and navigational equipment started going all kinds of crazy. And they couldn't understand what was going on. But their navigation was just a train wreck. Storm came in a little bit later on. But let me read you this this transcript here because this is this is quite interesting calling tower this is an emergency we seem to be off course we cannot see land repeat we cannot see land the tower asks what is your position we are not sure of our position we can't be sure where we are we seem to be lost tower instructed assume bearing due west so at this point, when the flight leader came back, he was, by all accounts, very shaken up. Uh, he had basically alarm in his voice. And this is what he says. We don't know which way is west. Everything is wrong, strange. We can't be sure of any direction. Even the ocean doesn't look as it should. So... That is totally bizarre that they can't tell which way is west. Now, you have a sun, right? Even if clouds are out, you can generally tell which direction the sun is in because those clouds over there are a little bit brighter than those clouds over here. But they can't tell which direction is west. Their navigational equipment is, their, their compasses are all awry. And when they look down, at the ocean, things are not appearing as they should be. Now, these are, you know, these are guys that have been running this flight pattern for a while on their training rooms. They know what should be down there when they're in this particular area, and it's just not. So have they at this point already traveled into the portal? We've talked about this before with different things like the missing Douglas airplane from the Alaska Triangle. Does some of that radio chatter come back through the portal if they went through the portal? I've described this before, Johnny V's restaurant with that shadow person that slammed into that door. I was looking at another dimension. Again, the question was, did it see me as a shadow? Did it see me as a ghost? The door did not open, but we heard the slam of that door. And again, this was just a little flimsy metal door. I know when people listening later that are not familiar with the story are going to, you know, what do you mean? You know, you slammed the door, but the door didn't move. Yeah, it was a little flimsy metal door. You could tap the thing and it would open. You heard the boom, the slam of it, but it didn't move. So was that hearing the sound coming from the other dimension? Because sound works on a different wavelength. So is that what's going on here? Have at this point, with compasses going crazy, the ocean not looking like it should, the fact that they can't even tell where west is looking at the sky, have they already traveled through it and their transmission is going back through the portal? Another interesting thing about this area, and then we'll, we'll get off the uh, Bermuda Triangle here. Tom pointed this out last time. We had a question about it last time we covered triangle areas, and he wanted to know about the Bimini Road. Uh, 
So, okay, let's take a look at, at Bimini Road here real quick in that area. Oh, guess what? It just happens to be in the Bermuda Triangle. Yep. It's actually in the Bermuda Triangle, kind of right smack dab in the middle of it, actually. And say what you want about what this thing is. Um, you know, personally, I believe it's... I'm not going to sit here and say it is Atlantis. I will not say that at all. I don't believe it is. But I do believe it is evidence of some sort of lost civilization that had once been there. Now, during the uh, during the Ice Age, when water levels were lower, there were a lot more... The, the land masses there around that area... Uh, were a lot more widespread. You know, with the water level down, and the water receded, a lot more was available. Now, this is not very far under the ocean. Um, you know, it, it's actually very, very easy to, to dive down into. It's just, um, you know, what is it? Something like uh, 30, 40 feet, something like that. It's not very far down at all. Uh if you look at some ancient maps, I'm going to bring up a piece of the Piri Reese map, which because I'm zoomed into it, you guys really don't have a whole reference to it at all. But there on the very left-hand side is the coast of Florida. And this particular mass here, where you can kind of see the road down the middle or something that resembles a road or a wall, um, th this landmass, of course, does not exist today. The Perry Reese map dates to the uh, 1500s. And of course, this did not exist in the 1500s. But Perry Reese wasn't just taking modern day accounts from his time. He did grab, you know, some charts that Christopher Columbus had drawn, but he also stated that he took maps. 20-something maps that were historic that he had combined together to make this map. One of the other controversial things in it is there's also the coastline of Antarctica, which we supposedly did not uh, discover until the 1820s. Yet you have this map and there's an, uh, another uh, ancient map that include Antarctica. Uh, so it's likely he grabbed this landmass here from some of those ancient maps. And again, this thing in the middle there could possibly be the Bimini Road. Now, again, this is the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. So we may have an example here of a lost civilization building some sort of massive megalithic structure trying to harness the energy of one of these hot spots on the earth. We've covered that at length in a number of our classes along the way. Not going to get into all that, but I wanted to throw it out there because it is quite interesting. Comments, questions down here in the chat. Let's see, Alina is in the house. Great to see you, Alina. 
And uh, Sarah asked, what was the closest identifying marker did they encounter when they found land again? Um, they, they didn't is, is kind of the thing. Uh, they were never heard from again out in the middle of the ocean. One of the interesting comments that was made along the way, looking down uh, at one point, uh, one of the pilots described what he thought were the Florida Keys, which was not the direction at all in which they were flying. So something was definitely amiss. Because, you know, they're traveling east, turn north. And, you know, we'll, we'll throw the map up here again real quick. Okay. Uh, they're going east from Fort Lauderdale and then turn north. Well, the, the Florida Keys are, are southwest, not northeast. And they did make their their first checkpoint. So, yeah, um, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense at all. And then, and then they were gone. So, all right, let's move on from that. We spent a lot of time there with, with Bermuda, vile vortices, and, and, and that sort of thing. We're going to go to a very, I'll say, unlikely location that you probably did not know had a triangle. In fact, I didn't know it had a triangle area until this past summer. That's in Ireland, of all places. And they call it a, a haunted triangle between uh, Charleville Castle, Lepp Castle, and Kennedy Castle. And for those listening to the podcast version or on the syndicated shows later, we're not talking Kennedy as in like JFK Kennedy. We're talking Kennedy, K-I-N-N-I-T-T-Y. Uh, three different castles there in Ireland, uh, all within the same county. Uh, they're, they're not that far from each other. It's actually a, a small triangle. Uh, but this is something that the locals have been talking about for a while, that uh, there, there seems to be within this corridor here, and it's a very, very narrow triangle as well, uh, a lot of unusually haunted locations with these three uh, as the main ones. So we're going to start with, with Charleville, uh, which is a beautiful castle, and it's not your typical Irish castle. You know, most of the castles there in Ireland are, well, a lot of them are in ruins. Uh, a lot of them are 11th, 12th, 13th century. Uh, Charleville dates to the 18th century. It's built in, um, well, it's, the, it's, it's debated, late 1700s into the early 1800s. But beautiful, beautiful location. Built by the Masons as well. So there's a lot of Masonic symbolism within the castle. And if you go back to our uh, Ireland recap class, you can find where we dig deep into that. But what I really want to note here with this particular castle, and then we'll cover uh, Lep, and we have a video clip here too, are the two towers. So you're going to see me in the red room. That's the tower on the left-hand side. And then you're going to see me in the library, which this photo here is taken from and is in the tower on the right. And so there is a very, very interesting uh, duality uh, or dualistic nature uh, about this castle. 
So let's go ahead and, um, well, it's not here. What in the world? So let me go dig that up real quick. Unbelievable. I know I had uploaded that earlier. <laughs> uh, because this is this is really fascinating here. So Ireland tour recap, and we want Charleville experiment. <sighs> Sometimes, and that's gonna take a moment to to load up too, because that's a video and not just a photograph. Okay. So talking dualistic nature will uh kill a little bit of time here as that loads up. Okay, even if you look at the this is the original floor of the castle. You can see uh, the black and white that's that's built into the floor. And we see a lot of that sort of thing uh, throughout the castle where you have the opposites. You have um, yin and the yang would not be the right term to, term to use in Ireland, but it's the same concept. Okay, here we go. So what did you determine the directions part? East-West. East-West. Yes. So one is pointing west, the other is pointing north. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that tells us the alignment of this room. Yeah, that was really fascinating when we did that test uh, in Charlottesville where, and, and she pointed out with her pendulum, now we only got video of it going in the one direction there and the other, but she uh, stated that in the other tower, it spun around in the opposite direction, but we saw that with the dowsing rods. So you stand in the, in the middle of the room and the, the rods would spin and then, um, then they'd point in, two different directions, one rod in one direction, one in the other. And, you know, from the Red Room Tower, it was, if I have this right, it was west and north. So one rod to the west pointing at the other tower and then one to the north. And then in the library, that particular tower, one was pointed to the east, back at the other tower, 
and the other to the south. So these rooms were set up opposite of each other, duality, uh, you know, as above, so below. So even, okay, you have symbolism all throughout the castle, but even in the construction of it, uh, you had the duality mixed into it. So this is one castle in the tip of our triangle here. The other one that we went to, we did not go to Kennedy, uh, but we did go to, to Lep. And what's fascinating about our trip to Lep, now this is supposed to be one of the most haunted castles in all of Ireland. And we found it extremely peaceful and serene. You know, this photo here is of the bloody chapel. And it was extremely, extremely peaceful up there. Um, you could have fallen asleep up there. It, it, the dichotomy of the reports that you get out of this place and our experience of it, very, very different. But I do have a, a video clip uh, of this as well. So here we go. Bloody Chapel. Okay, up here in the what's known as the Bloody Chapel, of Lep Castle. And the reason why it is called the Bloody Chapel is because of this thing back here. The Obliette. And yeah, it better not fall out the window. So basically the Obliette, the original purpose of this was that if the castle was being raided, usually where some of the most valuable items were, we're inside the chapel. You had your you know, gold chalices, your your gold crosses, and and things like that. A lot of your religious items were the more valuable type of items. And so, what you would do in the event of a raid is you would toss them in here, seal it up, and really, it's almost kind of like a secret passage. We actually saw a secret passage at Charleville. Well, it told us it was there. We didn't actually get to go through it. But basically, this was a secret entranceway into a pit where those valuables were, were hidden. However, the castle wasn't always being raided. You know, it was like a every once in a while thing that would happen. In the meantime, you're ruling your area. You have your little, not really kingdom, but uh, fiefdom, for lack of a better term, I guess. And uh, sometimes it might be a nefarious person or I don't know, maybe somebody that's, you didn't like. Uh, maybe somebody in the household wasn't uh, treating you nicely, whatever the deal was. And well, years ago, when they were excavating this thing, they found several skeletons. So this ended up being used as a murder hole rather than the traditional uh, use of an obliette. So that's why they call this the Bloody Chapel. It's also the elemental on the premises, which they believe um, dates back before the castle to the time of the Druids, that the Druids would have conjured this up as a protector of the land. And after the Druids were wiped out, well, the elemental is still around, probably an Earth-type elemental. And that is said to be seen here on occasion on the premises. There you go, the bloody chapel. And yeah, I think I answered your question there at the end, Sarah. Uh, yes, they, they did hide bodies down in the Obliette. 
Um, yeah, they used it as a murder hole, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, like Jen says here, uh, it, was, it was very, very peaceful. And she did meditate. You have Tom up here. Uh, my notes are lost in the Ohio Triangle. I do have I do have some notes on the side here. But uh, but yeah, apparently that video wasn't loaded. And uh, yes, Alina, uh, very, very peaceful. And then Sarah was wondering if there were Masonic, uh, Masonic significance to the directions there uh, at Charlottesville Castle. Well, I mean, you're talking the four cardinal dire directions, you know, north, south, east, west. And you have one tower pointing at two, and then the other tower pointing at the other two. So they're covering all uh, four points there. But very, very significant to me that you had, you know, one or the other opposite. And not just opposite, but they also managed to have them point at each other. So while one was pointing uh, east, the other was pointing west. So they were actually pointing at each other while one was also pointing south and the other was pointing north. So um, very, very interesting the way they, they set that up. So um, so that's what we have for the, the Ireland Triangle, little mini triangle. Uh, again, we, we did not go to Kennedy, so I don't have anything to cover from that. But that's supposed to be the, uh, the haunted triangle there in ireland so another spot of the world i try to tell people these things are all over the world dragon's triangle japan so we have covered this one a bit before uh but this one has some interesting tales and it has an older history this is what i find fascinating about it it has an older history than the other triangles at least as far as um, the type of legends that come out of here to signify it as a triangle area. Now, you can go all over the world and find ancient legends and folklore and things like that. Uh, but when we talk about the the triangle areas, um, this seems to be like one of the oldest for, for that type. It uh, goes all the way back to uh, you know, ancient China, about 1000 B.C., when uh, you had all kinds of reports of uh, or tales of there being dragons under the water that would wreak havoc on boats and ships, things of that nature. Uh, this particular depiction here is the one of the lost fleets of Kublai Khan, who's a grandson of Genghis Khan, who twice in the 13th century lost 40,000 crew aboard his ships, a total between the two invasions aboard ships bound for an invasion of Japan. And, you know, the waters kicked up. They they called these storms that kicked up in these cases the kamikazes. Um, of course, you know, we saw that terminology used again uh, during World War II uh, for whole different means. But, um, but, yeah, both times within this triangle area, he launches these invasions, and both times they get wiped out by these storms. So you have this, I don't know, it's almost like a curse that's been going on for centuries in this area. And it kicks up into uh, more, more modern times, uh, late 1800s, where you know, fishing boats would go into the area and would suddenly go missing. And there was a story of a spectral ghost-like woman or, or young girl who was the one that was destroying these things. There was a boat that was described as being in the shape of a traditional Japanese censer, you know, for burning incense. 
And when these fishing boats would cross it, they would disappear. And so uh, this is when the triangle started to actually take the name of Sea of the Devil. This is from the Japanese viewpoint. China was already calling it, um, you know, the, the Dragon's Triangle or the Dragon Sea, I'm sorry. But then in the 1940s, 1950s, you had other boats that were going missing the area. Fishing boats and military ships disappeared into the Dragon Triangle uh, around the area of, uh, or between Miyake Island and Iwo Jima. So 1952, the country of Japan sent out an investigative team aboard Kaiomaru number five to investigate what in the world was going on. Why were all these ships going missing? And wouldn't you know it, but Kairumaro number five also met with a similar fate. So didn't completely go missing. Some of the wreckage washed up, but they have no idea what happened to it. Everybody that was on board perished. Uh, it was uh, There was 22 on board. 12 of them were scientists to study the phenomenon. And they're gone. So then we're going to get into from there. I know... Uh, Tom is interested in this one. He always brings it up when we talk about triangle areas. That is the Lake Michigan Triangle. So we're bringing it a little bit closer to home here. So what's interesting about the Lake Michigan Triangle is there's a variety of different phenomena, but we may know what's actually charging this thing. Or, well, we'll get there. So some of the various stories that we have concerning this particular triangle, there's the, uh, the Rosabelle, 1921. It's found overturned in the lake. All 11 of the crew were missing. Uh, the ship had observable damage that had been struck by another ship, but no other ship was reported to have had an accident, been seen in the area, no other wreck had been found, nothing. But uh, there it is before its voyage, and this is what washed up. Then there's the strange case, April 1937, of Captain George Donner, the O.M. McFarland. And he had lied down to rest after navigating his ship through the icy waters, but he, the ship was fine, but he, Captain George Donner, was never seen again. As McFarland was nearing port, the crew went to wake Captain Donner as he had requested, hey, come wake me up as we nearing port. His door was locked. With no answer, after they knocked several times, the crew broke open the door, but Captain Donner had disappeared and his whereabouts remained unknown. So he just disappeared into thin air, even though he had requested, hey, come wake me up, and then just gone. And the 1950 year was a really bad year for airplanes. So we talk a lot about the, the Douglas Skymaster in 1950. There are several other strange things that happened in 1950. Broken Arrow uh, in Alaska, a uh, number of other things. But this one, Northwest Airlines, and then we talked about some things happening in Bermuda earlier. But this one was 19, uh, 1950, Northwest Airlines Flight 2501, carrying 58 passengers, vanished over Lake Michigan, and the plane was never found again. Uh, the, the pilot, now granted, the pilot was uh, reporting a severe electrical storm that was lashing the lake with high velocity winds. 
The pilot had descended the aircraft to 3,500 feet and then nothing. Two hours after the final transmission from flight 2501, two police officers reported witnessing a strange red light hovering over Lake Michigan for about 10 minutes before it disappeared. The red lights have been reported in the area since about 1913. So for almost 40 years, people had been reporting a strange red light over Lake Michigan. Now, one of the interesting things about the phenomena in these uh, triangle areas, vile vortices, th this sort of thing is not all, but in many of these cases, there seem to be these strange storms that kick up out of nowhere. With Flight 19, one of the things that was reported after they had turned north and they started experiencing strange, uh, you know, strange things going on with their equipment, there was a sudden storm that kicked up out of nowhere. Um, and they had to you know, fly under the storm as they were trying to figure out why in the world are, are we off course and, and the compasses are going crazy. With the Alaska Triangle, with the SS Princess Sophia, this one of the high, um, one hypothesis is that you know they were experiencing strange uh, navigational or uh, electro uh, magnetic anomalies that threw them off course because a blizzard had kicked up out of nowhere and they couldn't see, so they had to go off of their equipment and they ended up in the middle of the Vanderbilt Reef, which the captain knew was there. So you see a lot of this type of storm activity kick up during these things. Now, what's interesting about Lake Michigan is you also have these standing stones uh, that are within the lake. They're only about 40 feet down. Um, there, It's a smaller set of standing stones, but they're absolutely beautiful. They have the same alignment as Stonehenge. So I mentioned before that we may know what's powering the activity in the lake. And what I mean by that is, again, the ancients knew when and where to tap into these hotspot nodes of energy within the ground, the telluric currents of the earth, which we've, again, have talked about at length during our uh, earth energy uh, classes, you know, tapping into the power. I just posted one of those videos up on YouTube or, or piece of it up on YouTube. And so, uh, yeah, so they call this the Lake Michigan Stonehenge. Even though it, it doesn't look like it's a it's a hinge, <laughs> it's a set of standing stones. There is a difference between a hinge and a set of standing stones, even though a hinge may have standing stones within it. Some questions and comments down here real quick, and then I at least want to get to the Nevada Triangle because last time we covered this type of stuff, we didn't get to Nevada. Um, so Tom reports, people have seen the light from the top of the skyscrapers in Chicago. Uh, that's that's pretty interesting that that people have seen it from from up there and yeah it's been going on for over a hundred years this strange red light so um, people attribute that to some sort of possible uh, UFO activity now missing Douglas Skymaster from uh, the Alaska Triangle that is one where on either side of it before and after there are UFOs reported in the area. Um, oh, interesting. Thomas also scuba dived on those stones. Oh, fantastic. Uh, do tell. Do tell. So, all right. And yeah, Alina, it's very, very green down there for sure. So, all right, Nevada. So Nevada Triangle is not just in Nevada, and I think they should expand this. Uh, and we'll talk about that here. 
uh, a little bit. So you can see there around the Reno area, down to Fresno in California, and then over to Las Vegas. Uh, so over the past 60 years, over 2,000 planes have been lost in this area. So it also includes the notorious Area 51, which is, of course, is a hot spot for UFO sightings, strange phenomena, conspiracy theories, all, all that wonderful stuff. So uh, Area 51 is you know, kind of in the middle of this. But people believe that the extensive number of crashes in the area are due to a phenomenon known as a mountain wave. And what this is is an internal gravity wave within the mountain range that increases with elevation. So uh, as you increase elevation and you get into these uh, different pockets within the mountains, the gravity can shift a little bit and you kind of get drawn toward uh, those mountains. Uh, even, you know, we've talked about it a little bit before in Alaska, the Portage Pass, there are some interesting vortices along uh, the walls of the pass. But in that case, what's interesting is instead of drawing you closer in uh, bad weather situations, it, it can actually help propel you through the pass. So a different, different stone, different structure, uh, different makeup. Uh, in Nevada here, we have what they're calling uh, mountain waves. So again, uh, military plane crashes, disappearances in this area, uh, dating as far back as 1943. Modern pilots still have problems in the area. Uh, more recent high-profile case was Stephen Fawcett. He was a record-breaking aviator. Disappeared in 2007. About $1.6 was spent in search and rescue effort to find him. And they revealed nothing. It was a year later that a random hiker discovered the remnants of his place of his plane about 65 miles off course. So how he ended up so far out there, we don't know. Uh, but he was eventually found. And some of these, yes, some of these end up resulting in you know some wreckage being found. But many of them don't. And we're left to wonder where they went and what happened to them. Uh, you know, could be could be decades that, and finally, a, a plane or something like that is is found. Uh, but when it's you know 50, 60, 70 years, eighty years that something has been gone, you start to wonder. Well, it may have been something else. Some of the portals that that we talk about. Now, I did mention earlier that I think they could, they should actually expand this area a bit. And the reason why I say that, as far as what they're calling the Nevada Triangle, I mean, maybe call it the American Southwest Triangle. So again, this just encompasses Reno, Fresno, Las Vegas, but you're not far off the course from places like Sedona, Skinwalker Ranch, Four Corner Areas, Chaco Canyon, uh, you look at some of these maps of the energy grids that we've shown before, and no two of them seem to be the same. They're all different. They all have different points and segments and things like that. Um, but most of them do show this uh, crisscrossing of lines in the American Southwest. So each one of these has that, even though they're all different and they all have different intersections and things like that. They all seem to have one there in the American Southwest. So 
I think they should expand that to just like this American Southwest Triangle. You know, uh, the Uinta Basin. You know, they. If anybody's watching the Skinwalker Ranch stuff, that that's been absolutely fascinating to see what they have picked up on. Um, my good friend James Keenan has done a lot of work out there uh, between Skinwalker and Blind Blind Frog Ranch. Again, it's all part of the Uinta Basin, uh, but the uh, you know, the magnetism that they've been able to uh, to actually observe there, the strange phenomenon that's that cited, uh, it's just you know absolutely bizarre. I mean, personally, what I think it is is um, there is some sort of or metal, uh, maybe a meteorite, something like that, that is buried in the ground there that is creating a lot of that type of activity. Some people say it's a UFO. We don't know. I mean, a lot of UAPs and things like that uh, are seen in the area. Uh, but I don't know if there's like one buried in the ground. You know, I, I think it's some sort of metal or, or, or something like that. But then, you know, you have you know, Sedona, where people report portals and things like that, which is really all that corner of the American Southwest. So I think that Nevada Triangle should be uh, expanded a bit to include the whole Southwest corner. Sarah asks, could gravity waves also be at play at Skinwalker Ranch? Um, you don't have those type of mountain peaks there. Um, you know, it is, you know, with Skinwalker, you have the Mesa. Um, and what's interesting about that is there is a set of standing stones up there and there are symbols of the portals. But um, if we go back to, you know, this particular photo of the faucet crash, this here, this terrain um, has a lot more elevation to it, a lot sharper peaks than uh, the Uinta Basin and uh, Skinwalker Ranch. So... I don't think you're going to find it to be uh, you know, a mountain wave like that, but um, other type of waves, what I think is kind of going on there, we talk all the time about, you know, that that vortex energy rising up out of the ground. Well, how, how is that created? There's natural magnetism that's coming from the core, rises through the ground and interacts with, different metals, minerals, water. And there is water there that is reported underground. There's underground cisterns and caverns and things like that with water. So it's interacting with all of these different elements as it's rising through the ground. Depending on what it interacts with, it's creating this, these different energy fields. So I believe that, that is at play there uh, at Skinwalker and the other uh, locations there around the Uinta Basin. And I believe that is with the, with the stones I believe that's what the ancients in that area were trying to tap into and people are observing now at Skinwalker. So, all right, everybody, that is going to wrap it up for this particular class. Again, next week, no class. It's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So uh, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. Then we'll be back the first week of December. And I think we only have two more classes for the rest of the year. So, uh, so we're getting right down to the wire. We'll do something like uh, maybe on consciousness or something like that here uh, to, to kind of wrap it up uh, for our classes for the year. But for those listening, 
later on on the uh, podcasts or on the syndicated shows, please join us out here every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time Live. Get your questions answered. Watch the videos. Check out the presentation and so much other information and material on the back end. Definitely worth the nine bucks a month. Well, $9.99, so 10 bucks a month. <laughs> All right, everybody. Connect to universeportal.com. Until next time, if time really exists. <laughs>